We as a church have been working through this letter in the New Testament called 1 Corinthians. And I should let you know that this morning's message is very very closely linked to last week's sermon. It's almost like a two-part sermon spread over two weeks. They're like one big sermon, which works really well because you remember everything I said last week, right? Liars. It is so it is so humbling. Like as pastors, we bust our tails to research and prepare and deliver this, and people afterwards are like, oh pastor, that was a great message. And one hour after you leave here, you've got nothing. Well, that's not true. You remember maybe one funny comment, right? Like you'd be like, oh dude, that, that thing where you put up that slide where like people are like slinkies, that was awesome. That was awesome. And so we'd say, Oh really, what was the message about? Well, I didn't know there was going to be a quiz. <laughs> you got nothing. So there it is. So let me, um, let me remind you, last week we talked about the fact that Paul is a missionary, not a mercenary. And we said that's true for us too. We are supposed to be missionaries. If you remember this, this is how we ended last week. This was the last verse we looked at in verse 15 of chapter 9 where he said, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So if you remember what's going on, Paul made this huge case in the Bible for why ministers of the gospel ought to get paid for their work. But then he said, time out, he is planting a church and he realizes that if he claims that right, it will actually hurt the mission. So as a missionary, he lays down that right and he gets a job. He makes tents for like literally a tent maker to earn money while he does this gospel ministry. And so he presented the gospel free of charge. Now, we learn from that that that's not just about Paul, that we are supposed to be missionaries, not mercenaries. And here's what this week is about then. We're going to take that same idea of being a missionary and we're going to talk about the what, the how, and the why. Those three things, the what, the how, and the why. Because that's what Paul gets into in the very next verse. So here we are, we're going to be looking at the what, and we'll see that it's the necessity of preaching the gospel. Look what he says here, starting in verse 16. He says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. All right, so Paul is not like asking for something extra, some money, some tip. In fact, that that made me think of this guy right here. Have you seen this thing cropping up a lot more places lately? Right, the good old tip jar is all over the place. Now, I understand some professions rely on tips, like uh, waiters, waitresses don't get paid that much, so you get a tip. And, and so I try to be very generous in my tipping uh, because I feel like my witness for Christ can get attached. In fact, it is a great shame to me as a pastor, uh, as a Christian, that most servers hate the Sunday after church crowd because Christians are notoriously bad tippers. 
I'm not kidding. That's, that's horrible. And we, we got to change that, at least right in this area. Let's change that. So I try to tip pretty well, but there is a, a debate heating up in our culture about this practice. I, uh, let me back into it this way. Imagine you go to the car mechanic, right? And you get the bill and you pay that big bill. And then they say, now, uh, do you want to put a 20% tip on that? No, 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 I don't, Ashley. Well, you understand, sir, that Ashley, that just pays for the part, but then there's labor and the car mechanic doesn't get paid unless you tip him. And you'd say, fix it. <laughs> like change that system. That's not, we would be flat. What we take for granted at a restaurant, we would be blown away if we started doing that elsewhere. And you got to know that that's not only like weird at restaurants, but it's weird for in America. Like uh, around the world, they don't do that practice of tipping waiters. They look at Americans and like, y'all is crazy that you do that. They think that's really weird. And actually by world standards, it is weird. It's weird. But nonetheless, what's starting to happen is this stuff's growing, right? Have you noticed that like what used to be 15% is now 20% and the old 20% is now 25% and it's like expanding, but it's also growing where these things show up like carry out. I didn't sit down and start like carry out, right? Um, what about fast food? Like these are showing up at fast food. Have you seen them in the drive-thru lane? Like Okay, yes, I'm sitting, but no, I'm in my car. Right? Like These are showing up all over the place, and it's just kind of weird. I had one staff member tell me that recently he was at a retail store in the area, bought a board game. He was asked for a tip. There is a pizza place in the area where you cannot pay your bill by credit card unless you give a tip. Maybe you put a penny, but you have to put something where it won't go through. This is growing. All right, so what's the point? What if every Sunday morning when I preach, <laughs> don't anyone get out of their seats, okay? Some of you want to be the funny guy and put money in there. Three problems. One, you'll make things weird. Two, I'll reject the money and it goes in the offering. And three, you'll ruin the illustration. So don't, okay? It's don't. But wouldn't that be weird? What if every Sunday morning when I preach, there's a tip jar right there? And notice it's a big jar. I got a lot of expectations on you, right? That, like, what if I do that? Like, that would be really, really weird. And what Paul is saying, Paul is saying he does not expect to get tipped for his job. His job is necessary. It is required of him. Woe to him if he doesn't do it. He has to preach the gospel. That's not extra, no tip. What is extra for Paul is that he does it for free. Now, that's the extra part. But just doing the preaching of the gospel is his job. And by the way, it's our job too, as Christians. The point is that necessity is laid upon us. Paul is saying he can't boast about preaching the gospel. There's no boasting in that. That's just doing what he's supposed to do as a Christian. So the question becomes, what about you? What about you? Remember from last week, we're all missionaries. We're all in on this. We are missionaries to a fallen world. If you live on earth, you're in the mission field and we follow a missionary Lord. That's our job. Some of us, like me, do this full-time vocationally. I actually get paid and this is my, my main job. The rest of us, and that's most of you, are tent maker missionaries. You have another job that you work to earn money to, to provide for yourself. And then your real job though, is as a missionary. Necessity is laid upon us. The minister is not just in the pulpit. The ministers are in the pews. 
It's all of you. We're ministers of the gospel. So this is about preaching the gospel and necessity has laid it upon us and you don't get tipped for that. But we, when we as normal Christians, just we preach the God, we expect to get tipped. Here's how it goes down. You go to community group. Let's say you share the gospel with somebody earlier that week. You're going to bring that up as a prayer request, aren't you? Oh, yes, you are, right? And it's good to pray for it. It's good to celebrate it. But in that moment, we feel like we did something really, really extra, and we want to boast about it because we don't think it's our normal job. We think it's bonus. You see that? Something's a little bit off there. Now, contrast that with what Paul says. Paul says, woe to me. Like, settle in on that. Woe is not a, an easy word. It's a heavy word. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. His love for God demands that he preaches the gospel. He can't help but speak about God. And his love for people demands that he preaches the gospel because there are eternal destinies at stake. I want you to know something. Every person that you meet this week, every person you talk to this week has a destiny and it's either heaven or hell and that seems important to me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. See, part of the problem is that we have made a caricature of the gospel. You know, a caricature is that cartoony drawing where it, it actually takes some things that are true but then exaggerates them so that it's kind of untrue, right? And we've done that with the gospel. So we've made the gospel into, it's all about our felt needs, making us feel better. And again, it's anchored in truth. I mean, yes, you, you give your life to Jesus, you'll have more peace and there'll be comfort and he'll help you with this and help you with, yeah, yeah. But see, it's so exaggerated. Such that now the gospel becomes all about feeling good on earth, not about eternal issues. And you got to understand, as soon as we do that, the gospel is just one out of many. Because if you do stretching, you'll feel better on earth. If you do breathing exercises, if you do meditation, you do medication, you go to counseling, you start working out, you'll feel better. And the gospel is just one out of many. Except when it comes to eternal issues. Except when it comes to God and our sin and forgiveness and eternity, now the gospel stands alone. Have you ever thought about why God left you here? Like, as soon as you put your faith in Christ and you became his, you became a Christian, why not just beat me up, Scotty, and just suck you right up to heaven right then? Why not? Why did he leave you here? Say, well, it's for sanctification so that I can start growing in Jesus and become more like him. Okay, yes, that, again, it's anchored in truth, but here's the problem. Like, when you think about your sanctification spectrum, you start out here, and you ain't so pretty, right? Um, you start out, I start out, and that's the way we start out. Now, this is when we are glorified. We go home, we meet Jesus, all sin is wiped away, and we get our glorified bodies. On earth, you'll move from here to about here. Like as a sanctification process, it's very inefficient. It's very ineffective. You get like, but when you go home, bam, over here. So yes, sanctification happens, but I don't think he left you here for your sanctification. He's going to get that done when he takes you home. Why do he leave you here? I don't think it's just for sanctification. I think it's for proclamation. He gave us a job to do, and it's that we might take as many with us as possible. We're here to proclaim the gospel. That's our job, and it's not done yet. Necessity is laid upon us to preach the gospel. That's the what. 
The missionary's what is preaching the gospel. Now, we want to roll over into the how, and this is a very important uh, next step to get into, and you'll see Paul's going to take us there in the passage. It's an important next step because as soon as a Christian embraces the urgency of preaching the gospel, they get weird, right? And we end up standing on street corners with signs and shouting at people. And, and that's not who we want to be. It, doesn't it seem like the, the pendulum swings? Like you either have Christians who never preach the gospel, right? And they can relate well to the people around them, but they never tell them about Jesus. And then, it, boom, once they embrace the necessity, they swing through middle to the other extreme and they preach the gospel, but all they do is chase people away. Right? And scare people off. We got these two extremes. And it's ironic because this first group is the one who could really influence people because they actually, they connect well with the world around them. But they don't share the gospel. And then this group over here is the ones who trumpets the gospel, but they only chase people away. It reminds me of hunters wearing camouflage. Why does a hunter wear a camo? It's to get in close so you can get a high percentage shot so you can pull that trigger and eat some venison, right? Now, what you have over here is people who are very well camouflaged. They're in so close to the deer, the deer think they are their own, but they will never pull the trigger. And then what you have over here is the hunters will walk into the woods, blam, 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 blam. They're pulling the trigger like crazy, Scaring the deer off, they'll never hit one. No venison, no venison. Paul's saying, how about we meet in the middle? We embrace the necessity, the what? Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. But his how is that he's going to be all things to all people. The way he goes about it is really, really important. And let's look at that. Picking it up in the next verse, verse 19. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Okay, I know some of that was confusing. I'll explain it in a bit. But, But listen to this. He says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. What he's doing is the message of the gospel doesn't change, but the method does change. He tailors it because he's sensitive to his audience. He has tact. He's trying to connect with who they are. In the world of missions, we call this being indigenous. So when I, as American, uh, when I go over, I've been to Senegal. That's in West Africa. When I went to Senegal, I didn't try to force my Americanism on them. Instead, I go and I respect their culture in Senegal to share the gospel. So in Senegal, they eat out of the common bowl. One bowl with all these, and you have a pie wedge that's yours, and if you don't like something, you flick it to somebody else, and, and it's, it's weird. I don't eat out of a bowl with anyone else, ever, until I go to Senegal, and then I did. 
because I'm going to honor them. I'm, I'm going to honor their culture, right? Now, we understand that concept in overseas missions, but what's going on here is Paul is saying, no, you need to be indigenous to the subcultures around you, even in Northeast Ohio. And if we're not careful with that, like sometimes we, we become really bad at communicating the message when we're not sensitive to the culture around us. There's a uh, ministry of a church out in New Mexico, I think it is. Uh, it's called Wake, and it's their uh, young adult college ministry. And they put up some banners, and here they are. <clears throat> Why are you laughing? We are about worship, teaching, and fellowship. WTF. So, um, if you're just too old and you don't know what's going on right now, WTF stands for what the F-bomb. Okay, uh, and, and so to do that, now I love the caption, like, this is why you need at least one millennial on staff, right? Like somebody to go, ah, no bueno, no bueno. Don't do it, don't do it. All right. The idea there is you need to uh, tailor your method and your communication style to reach the audience you want to reach. And so when you look at this passage, it's not about Senegal, it's about living right here. See, at Redemption Chapel, we want you to be culturally comfortable and spiritually uncomfortable. You think about that. We want you to be culturally comfortable and spiritually uncomfortable because we're doing indigenous missions right here. A lot of churches make you culturally uncomfortable. So as soon as you walk in the front door, if you're new here, you feel odd and awkward and out of place and you hate it. Culturally uncomfortable. But they don't really preach from the scriptures hard and so they make you spiritually comfortable. We reverse that. And so, yes, we we don't waffle. We'll preach the scriptures and we'll go hard at it. You will be spiritually challenged by the, the scriptures. No apology there. That's the goal. But can we do it in a way that you're culturally comfortable from the moment you walk in the front door? Like the way you're greeted even. By the way, that's why on Easter, we never did the he is risen, he is risen indeed thing. Right? Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. So um, there is this ancient call and response greeting between Christians traditionally used on Easter or Resurrection Sunday where one Christian will say he is risen and then you would respond he is risen indeed. Some of you know that, some of you don't, okay? Here's the thing. We told our greeters at the doors not to do that on Easter, and here's why. Easter is the Sunday of the year when the most non-Christians and non-church people come to our, in our doors, and we're going to start off with secret code language that they don't know so they can feel awkward before they're even in the front door. No! I'll lay down that right. Well, I have a right to as a Christian. You're a missionary. Lay it down. And so we want to make them culturally comfortable. Then when they're sitting in here during the message, let the gospel make them uncomfortable. Not us. Not us. Now, my daughter, uh, she was wise enough when she woke up. She said, he is risen to Shannon and me. She knew her audience. She knew it fit there. We want to be wise. We want to adapt our method depending on our audience. It's really strange. Like a lot of Christians rally behind the idea of being indigenous in Senegal, but they get ticked when a church is indigenous in their hometown. That's weird. And that's not what this passage is about. Paul says he's going to be all things to all people. Now, let me help you understand some of the things he said there. Paul, uh, listen, in the Old Testament, there is the Jewish or the ceremonial laws. The things that Jews did, like the kosher diet, 
not eating pork or whatever, to, to make them Jewish. Paul is a Jew, but he came to Christ. He knows Jesus fulfilled that. Paul does not need to follow those rules anymore. But he says in there, he is under the law of Christ. That's the law of love. That's what compels him to lay down his rights at times to minister. He'll do all things for the gospel, right? Okay, so, so when Paul gets together with a Jew, no bacon. Sad words, I know. But, but no bacon, because he can, Paul? Yes. Will he? Not in that moment. Now, those outside the law, that's not like thieves and criminals. No, that's those who are not under the Old Testament Jewish laws. These are Gentiles, non-Jews. And when Paul meets with them, he'll enter into their world, he'll eat pork with them. And then it talks about the weak in there. So the weak are Gentiles who came to faith in Christ. But if you remember from chapter 8, they were getting bunged up about eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Paul says, it's fine, you can eat that. You have a right to, but he'll lay that right down. So if he's hanging out with them, he won't eat that meat. Now, side note, one of the things you'll notice from this is all of these are cultural issues, not sin issues. Do you notice Paul never said, and to the prostitutes, I became a John. (laughs) Didn't say that, right? Didn't say that. We are, though we are outside the Old Testament ceremonial law, we are under both the Old Testament and New Testament moral law that's still active, and therefore we don't become sinners in order to reach sinners. Granted, we're already sinners. Right, And so one of the most winsome things you can do when you're sharing the gospel with someone is not be holier than thou, but say, listen, be transparent, be vulnerable, be humble. You're a sinner too, and you need a savior. So you see, some of this then is just basic common sense. It's hospitality. I do not wrestle with alcoholism, and so I feel free to drink beer. But when I hang out with one of our many recovering alcoholics in our congregation, guess what? It's not time to exert my rights. It's time to lay down my rights and be sensitive to them. Now, some of them are like, it doesn't bother me anymore. You're fine. That's a different thing. But not knowing, I'm going to be extra cautious. You see that? If I'm hanging out with a vegan, listen, I can eat steak later. Do I have a right to eat steak? Yes. Am I going to lay down that right to relate to that person? Yes. In that moment, yes. It's being indigenous missionaries in Northeast Ohio. What's that mean? Like, so Paul, he gives us a little bit of hint. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. Wait a minute. Paul is a Jew. How can Paul become as, he is a Jew. Obviously, we're not talking about his identity or who he actually is. We're talking about how we act and interact with the cultures around us. So when around the Jews, he acts Jewish. He's going to connect with them. He's going to relate to them. He's going to honor their cultural customs, not give unnecessary offense. In so doing, he's going to show that he knows a little bit about their background and what they value. And he's showing honor and love in the process. That's what he's doing. So I do this with black folks. I don't know if you know this, but I'm actually not black. 
Okay, so you, okay, you might have figured that out. But I have learned, because of my heart for racial reconciliation, my desire to engage, I've learned how to shake a black man's hand. Now, in that moment, he can see I'm not black. He knows that. I know that he knows that. But in that moment, he knows that I know a little bit about his culture. I've gone the extra step to learn and to value and to honor his culture, and that's important. Now, I'm not going to be a poser. I'm not going to be a fake because that actually does the opposite. That, that kind of says, um, it, it dishonors Ashley. And so I have to be myself, but honor them. And I was uh, texting this week with a friend of mine, Pastor Brendan Glass. He pastors over in Talmadge. He's black and so on. We're talking about these things. We do programs together at times. Uh, and, and he confirmed, yeah, when a white guy is trying to act black, whatever that means, um, when he's doing that, most black folks can sniff that and it builds barriers, not bridges. You understand? The goal in this is to build bridges, not barriers, for the gospel. So the most winsome thing you can do with any crowd is be yourself and at the same time show honor to them and to their culture. So I'm going to, uh, uh, like I engage and I know, I know their background. I know some of the pain they feel now and some of the pain they felt in the past. And, and I, I know some of the traditions and I'm showing honor to their culture. That's what you want to be. And that can apply, man, that can apply with skaters, Muslims, athletes, bikers. It doesn't matter. I don't have to be one of them at all. I shouldn't fake it, but I should honor their culture and communicate in a way that builds bridges. And Paul does that. He's not being a two-faced chameleon. He is still himself, but he's honoring the culture that he's engaging with at the time. Here's another way of saying it. The gospel is offensive. You know that, right? The gospel says you're a horrible sinner and you can't fix it. That's a little bit offensive. The gospel's offensive. You don't have to help it. Like, you don't have to be offensive too. Like sometimes we preach the gospel and somebody's all ticked and like, well, you know, the gospel's offensive. It's like, no, that one's on you. Because you added to the offense by the way you communicated how you handled yourself, your delivery. And, and if you look at the end here, what Paul says, he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. So here's a question. What would it look like this week for you to do it all for the sake of the gospel? What would it look like for you to remember that every person you engage with this week has a destiny that's either heaven or hell and that's really important and you want the necessity of getting the gospel into their lives? But you're going to be all things to all people and honor them. And what's that going to look like? Because this seems important to me. Paul is saying the highest value is not himself. It's not his dreams. It's not his desires. It's not his gifting. It's not his flesh. None of his rights. That's not it. His highest value is getting the gospel to other people. It's love for God, love for people. It's salvation and forgiveness and eternity. It's the gospel. And he'll do whatever it takes to communicate the gospel to those in his culture that don't know Jesus. That's our job. And the cool thing is, when it works, like at the end there, it says that I may share with them in its blessings. What, what's, saying, what's being said there? It reminds me of Christmas morning. You know how in Christmas morning, like parents and grandparents love it. Why? You don't get gifts. <laughs> or you only get a few. You certainly don't get toys, which is sad, right? 
But your joy is watching the kids open those gifts, right? And it's just so much fun. Paul is a spiritual parent. And what he's saying is his joy is watching somebody who is far from Jesus understand the gospel, get it, and open the gospel for the very first time. And that's his joy. He shares with them in that blessing. My great sadness is for many who call themselves disciples of Jesus, you've never experienced that. You've never like leaned into the necessity of sharing the gospel and all things to all people so that you get to see that moment. I want that for you. It is such a blessing. It really is. All right, so we're being missionaries, not mercenaries. And, and there's a what, there's the necessity of preaching the gospel. There's a how, there's being all things to all people. And now there's a why. And so the next few verses uh, are one of my favorite passages in the scripture. Here's what he says. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest possibly after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Okay, I said possibly. It's not in there. That's another translation. Sorry. Um, I do love this passage, which is kind of weird because it speaks about running and I never run unless somebody's chasing me with an axe, right? Otherwise, no running. Like, I, I love that idea that, like, if you're out hiking with somebody and you get chased by a bear, you don't have to outrun the bear. Just the buddy next to you, right? Right, like, kick him in the knee first or something, and then run, I don't know. But, that's, but, it, but it is an athletic analogy. Now, here's why. Paul is going to be all things to all people. He's going to communicate in a way that they can understand. Corinth was the location for the biennial Smithian Games. It's like second only to the Olympics. It's a really, really big deal. This is an athletic town. And so he gives an athletic analogy. Go figure. Now, uh, it might work for them. It kind of doesn't work for us. Because if you're reading that, it says they do it to get this wreath. Is this Christmas? Why are we talking about a wreath? Some translations will say a crown. Is there a king on scene? Like what? This is just weird. But the, the real clue for us is that it talks about the prize. So this is an athlete getting the prize. And the prize in that day was a laurel wreath. Okay, after all, if you have a toga party coming up, what do you need? That's all you need, right? You need a bed sheet. And what is on his head? There it is. So what would happen in that day if you were the one that won the competition... You did not get a medal around your neck. You weren't given a trophy. You got, they'd take laurel plant. They'd weave it into a circle, a wreath. They'd place it on your head as a crown. And that's how everyone knew you're the victor. You won. You won. So that's what it is. Now, Paul says that what happens is every athlete exercises self-control in all things to get that prize. And that's true, right? Like, you think about elite athletes at this level and how they go through crazy stuff. I mean, what they wear is like minimal to not weigh them down. It's just tailored to their athletic competition. But their diet, not just their diet that day, but like their diet all year long, it, they don't get to eat what they want. They eat what they have to to, 
to get that split second advantage. What they drink, how much they drink, when they drink, how much they rest, how much they work out. Their workouts are going to be grueling, run till you puke workouts because you've got to outwork your opponent. And they do this and, and they make their bodies a slave. Like, to, to, Okay, so your body says, I really want to lay on the couch and eat Twinkies, right? And, and most of us, if we're honest, we're slaves. We're, okay, body, right, right? But the athlete says, no, I'm going to make my body a slave to that prize. And I'll do whatever it takes to win that prize. That's what the elite athlete does. In fact, the term athlete there is agonizomai, which is the Greek word from which we get agonize. Do you hear that? Agonize. The question is, will you agonize for the gospel? That's the question before us. If you think about how hard, like we do, we apply discipline all the time, right? We do it for, for worldly things. We do it for education. You want to get those advanced degrees, those letters after your name? You agonize for that, right? Uh, or your uh, athletic hobby, like you, you agonize for that. Or your diet because you want to lose weight, you agonize. You work out to get in shape, you agonize. Professional advancement to get that promotion, you'll work extra hard, you'll agonize. To build your business, you're going to agonize. But understand something. Like, what, what if we were to agonize for the gospel in the same way? We tend not to, if we're honest. But, but know this, that laurel wreath, that thing's going to wither and turn to dust. It's not worth your life. You are busting your tail for what? Listen, I'm not a prophet. I don't make prophecies often. I'm going to go on record right now. In a hundred years, you'll all be dead. And, and the things that you're agonizing for will be somebody else's property. It'll turn to dust. It'll turn to rust. It'll be forgotten. It'll be lost. It won't matter. And the only thing that you will have in that moment is the face of God and anything done for his kingdom. That's all that lasts. It reminds me of this meme that you weren't born just to pay bills and die. You weren't. You were made for far more than that. You you were given the opportunity to labor, to agonize for the imperishable crown, not the one that fades away. What is the imperishable crown? Well, Paul writes about that in a parallel passage to young pastor Timothy. Paul's coming to the end of his life here, and here's what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, and I pray that all of us could say this. He says, for I'm, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There it is. He's talking about racing, fighting, an athlete. He's finished it. He's going to get the crown handed to him by Jesus. And so just like an earthly athlete will upend her entire life for a lump of metal around the neck. Paul's saying, man, shouldn't we do the same for the imperishable crown? think, Think how hard the children of this world agonize to get the stuff of this world. 
Should not the children of God agonize harder, more, for the things of God? Paul is saying, it's okay to be competitive. Just don't be foolish. Don't be competitive for worldly crap that falls away. Instead, what he says in here is he says, run in such a way that you may win. Now, some of you, to be honest, are Christian couch potatoes. And you've got to realize that this is a race that we're in. And we need to be disciplined just like an earthly athlete. But we do it for the gospel. We do it for our Lord. We do it for people. We do it for the kingdom. We do it for eternity. We do it for things that don't fade away. That just makes sense. And Paul says in there, lest he be disqualified. Now, th- this is not for salvation. We don't work for our, our salvation. But this is for eternal reward. Because, you know, second place is first place loser, right? And so he's, being, he's working really hard for stuff that lasts for eternity. Listen, again, 70 to 80 years and you're done Everything you're busting your tail for, 70 to 80 years. Eternity, let me tell you about eternity. It's really, really long. Really long. Shouldn't we live for eternity? For the things of eternity, not just for these things of earth? And I'll tell you what, I remember when this message first clicked for me. I was in college at the time, and it changed my life. I mean, after all, at some point, we've got to be honest with ourselves. Either I don't believe this stuff, I don't really believe it, and my life reflects that, and so I'm living consistent. Or, or I believe it, and if I believe it, should not my life reflect that I believe it? Shouldn't it come out in my loving, my serving, my giving, my proclaiming the gospel, all these, shouldn't I put my money where my mouth is? And I'll tell you what, if you do that, It'll be so worth it. There's that moment coming when we will have the face of Jesus right in front of us and he'll look into your eyes and he'll say, well done, and he'll put that crown on your head. And in that moment, worth it. All worth it. And so we're missionaries. You got the what, the how, and the why. The why is run to win an imperishable crown. Now I want you to look at that screen and I want to end with just one last thought. On that screen is something called missional Christianity. And in our post-Christian society, which we're in, people are leaving the church in droves. But they're leaving the church, I'll tell you this, they are not leaving, they are not rejecting missional Christianity, they just have never seen it. What they've seen is a a cheap knockoff that is void of mission, It's void of vision. It's void of sacrifice. It's void of laying down our rights. It it doesn't put its money where its mouth is. It's it's void of love intact. And instead, it's interested in defending our political power. That's the Christianity they're seeing. And, And it's a bunch of Christians trying to live out the American dream just like their neighbors. They just bathe it in religious language. But it's hollow and it's selfish. And people are rejecting that. I'll tell you what, you can fake it to the people in your community group. You can fake it to me, but you will not fake it to your kids. And your kids will see if you're living that or not. And they're leaving the church. I want you to have the real deal. 
I want you to live what's on that screen. I want you to be missional Christians. I want, I want you to think as you're driving out today, what are you going to do this week to show that you believe eternity is real? You believe Jesus is amazing and you believe the gospel is the only hope. Will you put your money where your mouth is? Let me pray for that. Uh, Father, I, I said <laughs> culturally comfortable, spiritually uncomfortable. Uh, and that is true. It's a challenging message from your word today. But Father, thank you for the grace that folds, this, folds us into Jesus despite ourselves. But then, Lord, we just don't want to be distracted by shiny things and led astray and waste our life on the things of this world and uh, on perishable crowns. Would you lead us to the imperishable, to invest in our, uh, our walk with you, but also in the kingdom and spreading the kingdom and spreading the gospel. Let us invest in eternity. Lead us there, Lord, please, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.